on WealthTrack, leading ESG and impact bond manager Steve Liberatore explains how far sustainable bond investing has come and the wide-ranging opportunities in it. We're seeing very diverse growth. You know, we see more and more investors that are interested in green, but we're seeing more that are actually interested in social. And I think that's an indication of where the market is transitioning. An interview with TIAA Kreft's core impact bond fund manager on Consuelo Mac WealthTrack. Funding provided by ClearBridge Investments, Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, First Eagle Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Matthews Asia, Strategus Asset Management, and Women Investing in Security and Education. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. Socially responsible investing is one of the fastest growing segments of the investment world. The application of environmental, social, and governance standards to publicly traded companies and corporate and government bond issuers is being demanded by institutional and individual investors alike. This week's guest is a leader in ESG fixed income investing, as well as the relatively new area of impact investing, where bond proceeds are directed to a specific project or goal and the results are measurable. He is Steve Liberatore, Lead Portfolio Manager and Head of ESG Impact for Global Fixed Income at Nuveen, the investment arm of TIAA and a pioneer in the field. Liberatore oversees more than $18 billion in public fixed income ESG and impact investments, including the flagship TIAA Kreft Core Impact Bond Fund. Launched in 2012, it was one of the first ESG fixed income mutual funds rated four-star bronze. It has outpaced both the general intermediate core bond fund category plus its benchmark. I began by asking Liberator for an update on socially responsible fixed income investing. How big is the market and how it is changing? So for us, it's the combination of two um, distinct yet related concepts. We invest first in securities of issuers that we deem to be ESG leaders or issuers that have strong, shown strong performance on environmental, social, and governance factors. And we look for issuers across the fixed income spectrum. We then combine with those um, impact investments. And for us, it's a very simple analysis. Um, the description is a security that has a direct and measurable social and or environmental outcome associated with it. And how big is this market? I mean, the, the entire fixed income global market is about, what, $100 trillion worth yeah, of securities? 100, roughly $100 trillion, correct. Do you specify this is, these are ESG issues or these are impact bonds? How big is that market? Yeah, so when we look at the market, how we go about creating our index is we look at, you know, we do a lot of work internally, ourself, myself and my team, our separate responsible investment team, and we work with third-party data providers to create a customized index that reflects best-of-industry-class ESG leadership. And we use the U.S. Uh, the, the Barclays um, Universal Index, which is the broadest universe available within fixed income. So roughly, you're going to get a little less than than 50 trillion would be eligible, um, you know, from a best-of-industry-class approach. Um, because what you're really trying to do is separate out issuers that perform well and those that do not, but provide opportunities for those issuers to interchangeably move back and forth so you have an ability to engage with issuers to get them to continually improve their environmental, social, and governance performance by providing the opportunity for them to move into an eligible position. Some of the critics of this type of investing 
one of their problems with it has been that it excludes so many potential issuers because they don't meet certain criteria. But Nuveen, which is a pioneer in ESG investing, has a different approach. When I first started managing dedicated ESG and impact portfolios 18 years ago, where we were at that point was just coming off of a period of time where responsible investing was focused on a concept called exclusionary screening. And that is exactly what you described, where we were just excluding entire sectors and issuers from investment. And that is where this main misperception that I still deal with today when I talk to potential investors, that you sacrifice performance to be a responsible investor. That's where it comes from, is that old exclusionary screening, because if you didn't invest in oil and gas and oil and gas rallied, you structurally deficient. You couldn't keep up. But one of the other major issues with that approach is that it didn't provide the opportunity for engagement. If you, you know, Consuelo were the CEO of an oil and gas company, you would have no desire or reason to ever talk to me because you know no matter what you said or did, I could never invest in your, in your debt. So it, it was all stick with no carrot. So where we are now with this best of industry class approach is an ability to still identify leadership characteristics that we want to be able to, to highlight and focus on, but also be able to utilize those as benchmarks for other issuers to continually try to improve. And so that engagement process has really helped us to be able to work with issuers across the spectrum to improve how they look at environmental, social, and governance criteria or how they're, how they're analyzing their exposure or their response to it. So myself and my team last year had 164 different engagements with issuers and, and very specific around structuring of impact securities, but also situations like I was able to, I was asked to speak to the CFO, basically roundtable of the oil and gas industry about ES and G factors. So 20 years ago, that never would have occurred but because of this shift in this approach, we're now in a place where we're, we're actively working with issuers. And what we're trying to say, oil and gas is the perfect example. We're not saying don't invest in oil and gas. What we're saying is if you want to invest in oil and gas, you want to invest in issuers who are good stewards of the environment because that means they're going to win more business. They're going to be fined less. They're going to have less costs associated with environmental cleanup. So again, that translates into, for that industry, being a good steward of the environment, translates into a more stable free cash flow profile going forward, which is exactly what we're trying to identify. That's prospective debt that you might buy. Is that right? The main challenge slash opportunity in this space is that what we're trying to do is define things that are inherently subjective. You know, environmental, social, and governance criteria, what is a green source of energy? that's all subjective to, to individuals. So I'm well aware, because I talk to them frequently, that 100% of my investors are not happy with 100% of the holdings that we have because they're all viewing environmental, social, and governance criteria through their own lens. You know, is it possible that an oil and gas issuer might have a bond that you wouldn't buy, whereas if they're funding a clean energy project or something, that you would buy. Does that happen as well? That, absolutely. That's, a, that's exactly where we're going with the process that we have where we're combining ESG leadership and impact investing. For us, an impact investment, as I mentioned, is a direct and measurable use of proceeds. 
So for us, we don't, and, and in our process, we don't care if the issuer is in our eligible universe as long as the security has a direct and measurable outcome because we view that as an ability for us to impact, no pun intended, the, the operations of that issuer and get them to understand that there is funding available for certain types of business growth and certain business lines that isn't available to them in their normal business lines. So we really want to be able to direct capital in a way that allows for us to lower the cost of capital for that specific project pool of assets that we feel have an environmental and or social benefit associated with them so that the issuer can see the opportunity for them to grow in that particular space. To me, you know, where you can see it is in the actions, you know, that occur in the marketplace where the Arab Petroleum Investment Corporation, which is effectively a multilateral development bank of um, uh, Middle East and North African oil producing countries, issued a green bond in order to fund renewable energy projects in their countries. So you, you think about that for a minute, it gives you a sense of where things are going as far as the future. You've been quite outspoken about the dangers of greenwashing. These are companies that are saying that they are being environmentally sound, but in fact, that they're really not. When somebody says that they've got an environmentally, you know, a green bond, can we actually trust that they do? Yeah, I, I think that where we're going and, and the way you're describing this is exactly right. You know, the concept of greenwashing is trying to present yourself as doing something sustainable that isn't. Um, and one of the, again, going back to the challenges, opportunities in the space is what's green is different for everyone. So it, it's really up to the individual investor to understand how, you know, what they're looking for, but also, you know, if they're using an asset manager, how is their asset manager defining green or how they're defining sustainability so that they can understand what's in the marketplace. And for us, the use of proceeds concept, which is why we're very much focused on that versus, say, a sustainability-linked bond structure, um, is because we know where the proceeds are going, and we're also requiring impact data back from the issuer to measure the efficacy of how that capital has been deployed. So it allows for us to monitor and track our investors' capital. And, and I think that that's really been one of the underreported um, driving forces in the growth of ESG and, and impact investing is it's almost the purest way at the moment for an investor to control how their capital is being used because they will know up front the types of issuers they're going to expect to see, but they're also going to be able to see, at least in our case, we produce a very lengthy impact report for our investors to be able to see how their capital was deployed and the specific quantitative outcomes that were associated with the investments we made for them. Where are you seeing the most uh, growth and the biggest opportunities? We're seeing very diverse growth. You know, we see more and more issue investors that are interested in green, but we're seeing more that are actually interested in social. So for us, we have a series of, of green bond mutual funds and, and separate accounts but last year, we actually launched our first social bond, pure social bond portfolio. And I think that's an indication of where the market is transitioning. Um, on a percentage basis, green bonds, still the dominant player. You know, last year was the first year where there was roughly a trillion, a trillion dollars in total issuance of labeled security. So green, social, sustainability, which is a concept of combining 
green and social outcomes in one transaction, sustainability linked, which is more of an issuer level commitment to achieving some type of key performance indicator or KPI. And if those, that KPI isn't met, there is a step up feature associated with it. Um, that is not something that we're big fans of from, from the way they're being executed. And then transition bonds. Um, so we've had about a trillion dollars in total there. And roughly half of that has been green, which was roughly a doubling from the previous year. Wow. Um, so social bonds continue to grow. They really grew rapidly and, in and 2020. And explain, explain what social bonds are. Absolutely. So a social bond is a security that has a direct and measurable social outcome associated with it. So think about a deal where so you're funding. So they're an impact bond. They're absolutely. They're, yeah. they're absolutely an impact bond. Okay. Um, and think of it of um, investing in an affordable housing project or an educational program or a training type program, things of that nature that are targeted more towards um, underserved communities um, and those that may not be receiving the same level of capital deployment that, that, we've see, that we would need to see in order for those communities to be able to improve um, from, from where they're currently situated. And, and I know, you know one example uh, that, that we have talked about a little bit on our website, wealthtalk.com, the last time you were on, is something called the Women's Livelihood Bond Series. So that is a, a series of, of securities that have been put together by a, an entity called IIX. Um, and what it does is it specifically targets underserved women in Southeast Asia. So it's an opportunity for us to invest in, in those individuals and provide them things like uh, microfinance loans for, for small businesses, uh, micro savings products for them, for, for those women there that may not be as banked or underbanked or not banked at all. Um, it also provides funding for training, for job training, but also for those women in Southeast Asia that are running their own agricultural businesses, so farming, and, and provides them more training, how to be more sustainable in their farming. Um, so it's really a great opportunity to narrow down the focus and provide capital directly to, to women in, an, in a part of the world where we haven't seen that focus. And, and this concept of gender lens investing is really now just starting to grow more widely and hopefully giving us an opportunity to really target capital to um, a, a part of our population that has been underserved and in a lot of parts of the world really could be a, a tremendous economic engine for growth in those countries. And we've actually worked with IIX um, on a concept called the Orange Bond, Orange Bond Initiative. Um, and that is going to be a, an initiative where it's going to be creation of a framework and an ecosystem similar to the green bond principles that provided a framework for growth in issuing and investing in, in green bonds, this orange bond initiative is really gonna be hopefully a way for us to create an environment where more issuers are gonna understand what would be needed to target investments and also provide investors a concept and an understanding of what they could expect to see from a gender lens investment as well. So this is a really exciting development. When we're talking about social bonds, for instance, it, are, are the standards still as high as you would normally apply to, uh, you know, to your ESG investing? Are the standards for impact investing just as high? 
Absolutely. For us, um, that is a key. Um, mm -hmm. We are very focused on, first and foremost, we are an active total return manager. So right. the first thing our investors are looking for is a total return you know, within their portfolio. It just happens to be that we're focusing on applying ESG criteria and impact investing through the portfolio construction process. So any security we look at has to look attractive from a total return perspective. So when we look at something like the Women's Livelihood Bond that has a public-private partnership, we have to evaluate what the risk profile is of the entire transaction. So it, it, all of that is still the exact same process. And our impact process is extremely rigorous, um, similar to what we do on the ESG leadership side. Mm -hmm. We're always looking for, I'm gonna sit here and tell you we're leaders in the space, but we're always looking for third party validation of that. So our ESG leader process has received straight A's from the UN uh, PRI, Principles for Responsible Investment, um, in which is you know extremely important to us. We've got, again, straight A's with a couple of A pluses thrown in. And on the impact side, we have um, had third party alignment or verification with being in alignment with the um, International Finance Corporation's operating principles for impact management, which is a very rigorous process to ensure that how you manage impact is in alignment with really best practices globally. Index funds are extremely popular now. That's the way a lot of people are going. Are, are these kind of bonds indexable? I mean you know, I think index funds are, you know, tremendous products for a wide range of individuals. But I think that when you look at something like, especially in fixed income, it's an over-the-counter market. You know, it's not a made market. So mm -hmm. what, you know, the difference there is that there isn't necessarily a price where you can absolutely transact a security at this point in time. So because of that differential, um, unlike the equity market, it may make more sense to be an active, an active fixed income investor. So where we're trying to find opportunities are in securities that aren't as well understood or known and therefore aren't in the index. So they may not be in the index because they're only a $50 million you know, maturity, not a $300 million. Uh, they may not be index eligible because they have a sinking fund associated with them, which means every year you're receiving a partial repayment of your principal, similar to how you pay your mortgage mm -hmm. you know, every single month. Right. Um, so those are the things that kind of take something out of being index eligible, which makes them a little bit cheaper because they're not eligible for every single portfolio, which again provides us an opportunity to find attractively priced securities. What's happening in Ukraine, Russia invading Ukraine, Russia is a prominent emerging market. How do you evaluate Russia from an ESG perspective. This is another great example of the need for active management, especially within a dedicated ESG or impact portfolio where I think every portfolio manager should know and understand every security they own, but especially in a dedicated ESG and impact portfolio because our investors absolutely care and will ask and want to know what's in there. Um, but for example, Russia was in our eligible universe up until about a month ago. And it's a great example to remind people that similar to a credit rating, that ESG view or rating is just someone's opinion, right? You still have to be able to do the work yourself to make a determination of whether or not that view is consistent with what you think, what your analyst thinks, what we're seeing on the trading desk. So, for, so Russia has always been, has been eligible, 
but I have never owned a Russian security simply because it is run by an autocratic regime whose entire economy is driven by fossil fuel extraction and doesn't appear focused on trying to transition away from that in any way. The growth of ESG uh, investing and impact investing, uh, are there enough companies that qualify that you can, that you feel that you will have enough opportunities to invest in the money that's coming your way. I think that's really another real important reason why you want to use that best of industry class approach. You want to make sure that you're constantly relatively looking and being able to provide investment capital to those issuers that are doing well. On the impact side, the growth there has been tremendous. Pretty much the market has doubled every year since, you know, since the, since it started really mm -hmm. in 2012. So it's really important to to consider the fact that as long as there is demand and there is absolutely increasing demand as we see more data and more results showing good performance you know especially relative to common benchmarks that you're going to see an additional issuance and when, when you're talking about impact securities is that what it's doing is it's creating an ecosystem or an environment where every issuer regardless of who they are or what sector they're in is identifying and evaluating their own operations to figure out ways in which they can be more sustainable because they want to they want to attract that capital and i think that's really an important thing going forward because it's brought to the forefront this concept of sustainability and this concept of making sure that you as an entity are greater than just shareholder return steve one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio i think you do need to really consider you know renewable energy, you know, in, in a variety of different formats. You know, it can be direct um, in solar power projects or, or geothermal or wind, but also maybe looking at things like asset-backed securities, where the underlying assets are loans to people who have purchased solar panels for their home. And, and there's a really good double benefit there of diversification. You're getting access to very high-quality cash flows, but also what you're doing in the long run is you are helping to lower the cost of capital for distributed generation. If we're able to continue to provide financing to solar panels and solar arrays, in addition to the fact that they themselves are becoming cheaper to, um, cheaper to purchase and invest in because they're a technology. The more that's mm -hmm. invested in them, the cheaper they become. You then combine that with lower costs of capital. You could really spur continued rapid growth there and most importantly, what you're going to do by, by providing that capital is you're going to show individuals that the, what they've been told their entire lives about becoming more sustainable or becoming a greener economy or being more focused on renewables is going to cost you money. What it actually will do is show you that it's going to save you money. It's actually beneficial to you financially. And I think that would really be a huge, powerful tipping point for people to see that what they've been told isn't correct and that they could actually become much more focused on the environment in a way that actually saves them money. So invest in renewable energy projects. These are, again, are these impact investments? These would absolutely be impact investments. Right. Renewable energy, I think, is, is the way of the future. And I think that the stability of the cash flows associated with them, whether it's at the utility scale level, so in, an, in a huge solar array, for example, or in the ABS that's for that's taking on pools of loans to individuals, 
for solar panels on their houses, that's another great way to do it as well. All right, Steve LaBertard, thanks so much for joining us on WealthTrack once again. We really appreciate it. Thank you again for having me. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At the close of every wealth strike, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's Action Point continues a recent theme of mine to counteract the prevailing pessimism about the war in Ukraine and the world in general. It is to learn about Winston Churchill's courage under unimaginably difficult circumstances early in World War II when Britain stood alone against the Nazi onslaught. This week's Action Point is read two excellent but lesser-known books about the daunting challenges Churchill faced upon becoming prime minister in 1940. The first is Five Days in London, May 1940, by eminent historian John Lukacs. It's about the five crucial days, May 24th through 28th, that literally could have changed the world. Churchill was fighting powerful enemies within Britain who still wanted a negotiated peace, and Hitler, whose armies had blitzkrieged through Europe and had British soldiers cornered in France. We all know how it ended, but I had no idea how perilous Churchill's and Western civilization's fates really were. The other is Citizens of London, the Americans who stood with Britain in its darkest, finest hour by Lynn Olson. There were three Americans, CBS correspondent Edward R. Morrow, millionaire Avril Harriman, and U.S. Ambassador John Gilbert Winant, who became part of Churchill's inner circle and were instrumental in finally persuading a reluctant FDR to back Britain. Both books are fascinating, riveting, and inspiring. They will lift your spirits and give you courage in dark times. Next week, financial markets at a multi-decade inflection point with Bank of America's influential equity strategist, Sabita Subramanian. In this week's extra feature, Steve Liberator discusses the importance of the UN in establishing global ESG standards. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thanks for watching. Have a great weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.